This morning, if you have your Bibles, please open uh, with me to John chapter 6. We'll be picking up there. Uh, I know it's been a couple weeks since we've uh, been in John's Gospel, but that's what we are uh, studying through uh, at this time. And uh, while you are uh, turning there, uh, if you've uh, spent any time uh, in hotel rooms, uh, it's more than likely that you've opened uh, a drawer next to a uh, a bedside table. uh, And usually what do you find in that drawer next to the bed in a hotel room? A Gideon Bible, that's right. Uh, and uh, the Gideons don't just supply Bibles to, uh, to hotels, but also to uh, prisons, hospitals, and uh, schools. Uh, and over their history, they have distributed more than 2.4 billion, with a B, Bibles uh, worldwide. And uh, it may have been if you stayed a night at a Marriott hotel right alongside the Gideon Bible, you would have also found uh, the Book of Mormon. Yeah, and uh, but now there's a growing trend among large hotel chains, uh, and that fewer and fewer of them are uh, allowing the Gideons to put uh, Bibles in their rooms. Uh, in 2008, nearly uh, 84% of all hotel rooms had Gideon Bibles, but eight years later, in 2016, that had dropped uh, to about 69%, uh, and then two years later, it was even lower than that in 2018. There was a recent uh, news article in the Washington Post that it kind of examined why this was uh, happening, kind of this cultural trend, and uh, largely pointed to the uh, just the changing preferences of uh, the people in our society. Right? The people don't necessarily uh, always want to, to have a Bible there. Uh, this article in the Washington Post quotes uh, Alistair uh, Tommen, Uh, CEO of the Generator and Freehand Hotels, and he says this in the article. He says, The concept of putting a Bible in room is an outdated practice uh, and is exclusive to the religious denomination that believes in that scripture only. And we don't provide Bibles in room because our travelers are so diverse and we want our properties to feel inclusive of all varying beliefs and spiritual traditions. And the article then uh, tells us about uh, Providence, Ho- Providence Hotels, which has 14 properties in the United States and offers guests a spiritual menu uh, in their rooms that lets them call the front desk and request the book of their choice. And the company introduced this option more than a decade ago to recognize and honor the diversity of our guests who hail from a myriad of cultural and religious uh, traditions. And they say that the Bible is is an option, but rather than offering a one-size-fits-all approach of placing just that book in the nightstand, we wanted to give our guests options so that we can deliver inspiration tailored to the individual, uh, this uh, CEO said. And then there's a... Well, that was a solution welcomed by the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Anybody ever heard of that? Freedom From Religion Foundation. It's a Wisconsin-based organization that promotes uh, the separation of church and state and embraces non-theism. And the group regularly asks hotels to remove religious literature from uh, their rooms. And actually, this organization sells a $3 sticker. uh, And they say that it's perfect for hotel rooms. And the sticker has uh, a skull and crossbones that says, uh, Warning, literal belief in this book may endanger your health. Uh, and life. And they, and they encourage people to put those on uh, the Bibles. And the foundation has sent letters uh, over the years to hospitality companies asking them to offer Bible free rooms to be more hospitable to guests who aren't religious. 
And Annie uh, Laurie uh, Gaylor, one of the the foundation's presidents, says this uh, in this article. She says, we don't want to pay high prices to rent a room and then find uh, this sometimes open Bible when we go to open the drawer uh, and be confronted with this book that is so primitive and very anti our rights. Uh, and the group uh, has, uh, hasn't asked hotels to stop offering the material altogether just to keep them available outside of the room. Uh, and they even asked uh, or encouraged uh, these hotel groups to start a little library uh, in their lobby so that people could come and get uh, whatever kind of spiritual uh, book that they want. And this uh, president of this uh, organization says, we hope that you would include perhaps the work of evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins and non-believers as well. And now, uh, just just in commenting on that article, it's okay for hotels not to have uh, Bibles. That's not something that we need to be up in arms about. That's really a benefit of living in a society uh, that, for the most part of the, the last century, has been a, a Christian culture. Right? And we're, we're kind of slowly coming out of that. That's where we, we begin to see uh, the culture pushing back against some of these even small things of just having a Bible uh, in a hotel room. Uh, and we don't need to worry about the creation of these little hotel libraries either. Uh, and I love uh, Al Mohler was talking about this article. And he says, I don't really fear that because I don't think in the middle of the night, if somebody is not able to sleep and, and, and restless within their soul, I don't think they're going to go down to the hotel lobby and look for answers from Richard Dawkins. Like, I just don't see that coming because his worldview has no hope. And this is, we're in essence a cosmic accident uh, in that atheistic worldview. Uh, so we don't need to, to worry about that. But I, but I point to this article, uh, something that we should note uh, as something that is changing in our culture. Uh, now, in the hospitality industry, as we see here, it is, it is understandable for them to try and appeal to people's preferences, right? Uh, that, that is what they do. That's what they want to, that's the, the mainstay of their business. But this, this desire to, to appeal and appease everybody's uh, individual preferences, it doesn't just stay in the hospitality industry. Right? Uh, I'm sure you guys feel that. We're, our whole uh, culture is now going into uh, this desire to uh, appeal to everyone uh, and appease everyone as individuals. That whatever preferences they may have, that we have to, to cater to those preferences. Uh, and, uh, and that's why we have to be careful uh, as Christians. Yeah, because that can easily creep into uh, our own mindset and into our own hearts. Uh, and as Christians, uh, our faith is built upon not our own preferences, but upon the Lordship of Christ. Uh, upon uh, submitting to, to His will, submitting to His word. Uh, this is not uh, Burger King. This is not have it your way. Uh, this is we do, we do what we do according to God's word. Uh, and this is so important because there is a, a tendency that we, we hatch, have naturally uh, that we like to compartmentalize our lives. As I've noticed that we, we compartmentalize our lives and we, then we say, okay, Jesus, you can have these compartments uh, and I give those to you and I'll submit to you in, uh, in these areas of my life. But in this one or two areas over here that are really precious to me, and usually that's uh, where our, our areas of, of sin are or our, the idols within our heart. We say, okay, Lord, uh, don't touch those. You can have everything else, but leave these to me. Uh, this, these are my preferences. And Lord, I'm not going to submit them to you. 
But when we do that, when we compartmentalize our life and, and hold out certain compartments to ourselves, we are guilty of idolatry. We're guilty of sin, of rebellion, right? When, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, one of the most famous statements in there, I'm sure you know the, the Lord's Prayer, this is, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But when we are being governed by our own preferences we're not praying that we're saying may my will be done and that's why we need to look closely at our own individual preferences uh, what is it that we want what is it that we prefer because those preferences those desires will reveal what's really going on within our hearts and what we truly believe uh, and there may be times that our preferences uh, line up with Christ, that, that they, they, they lead us to follow him for a time. But uh, eventually, if we continue to follow our preferences, what will eventually happen? Well, we will part ways. We will wander away from the narrow path that Christ is calling us to walk and we will go our own direction. So the question we face is, Will I stay on that road and prefer Christ, or will I follow my own preferences and go my own way? And the reason I bring all of that up is we're, we're studying here in the, in the Gospel of John. Uh, and the Gospel of John, especially here in chapter 6, is building towards a climax. Okay? Uh, John chapter 6 is going to be when uh, many of the disciples of Jesus fall away. Many of them uh, are going to say, Jesus, what you are saying and what you are teaching is kind of difficult. Right? If you look with me uh, beyond where we're going to be this morning, but if you just look at verse uh, 60. Now, after uh, Jesus is, is teaching and we've looked at uh, the early part of John chapter 6, and right now we're in the middle of what is known as the, the bread of life discourse, which begins in verse 22 and lasts to the end of the chapter. But in verse 60, after saying some hard things, look at what the disciples say. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? So they begin to complain like, Jesus, what you're saying is really difficult to follow. It's really difficult uh, to submit to that. Right? They, they want to follow their own preferences. And then... If you look at verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Again, when it, when it came to what Jesus was calling them to do or their own preferences, which one did they choose? Their own preferences They say, hey, I, I'm going to go my own way. And if that means departing from Jesus, then so be it. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at verses 30 through 35 in this chapter. But what I'd like to do is kind of uh, get a running start uh, on it since we've been away for a couple weeks. We'll begin reading with me in verse 22. This is after Jesus has fed the 5,000. This is after Jesus has walked on the water. And the next day, in verse 22, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. And other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what we're going to see this morning as we read from the Bread of Life discourse, we're going to see Jesus teaching, and we're going to see the response of the people, the response of his so-called disciples. And what we're going to get a picture of is what a nominal faith looks like. Of those who say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. But then their preferences of this nominal faith lead them away. Really, it's, it's unbelief. They don't want to believe in Jesus. They want to go their own direction. And this is helpful for us to see and to understand because while we will not all fall away as these disciples did, that's not what I'm trying to, to say here, There will be times, even as believers, that we begin to follow our own preferences. That we follow our own desires. And where we live and act based upon what we want. Whether we do that out of fear or or doubt. Uh, But the Lord Jesus Christ is calling us not not to follow our own preferences, but to follow Him. And as we look at the preferences of uh, the people here, we're going to begin to see uh, the preferences of a, of a nominal faith, a faith that is in name only but not genuine. And what are these preferences of faith? Well, what we're going to see in this passage is, is uh, three preferences, and the first two are going to be of a nominal faith, and the last one is going to be of a genuine faith. Okay, three preferences. Uh, and this is what we're going to, uh, to take a look at. And the first is in verses 30 and 31. Now, that a nominal faith prefers manipulation over submission. A nominal faith prefers manipulation over submission. This is again in verses 30 through 31. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now remember, this is immediately coming off of uh, a passage that we studied several weeks ago uh, where uh, Jesus is is saying uh, that they should work uh, for the food that endures. And then the people say, well, well, what are the works of God that we need to do? 
Right? What is it that God is requiring of us? And Jesus says, well, there's really only one work. It's not works many, not works plural. God is requiring one thing of you, and that's that you believe in the one whom he has sent. But what they, the people respond after him saying that in verse 29... They say, okay, they understand that when Jesus says the one whom God has sent, that he's speaking about himself. He says, okay, Jesus, if you want us to believe in you, they're showing some skepticism. They say, well, then what work are you doing? What sign are you performing to show that we should believe in you, Jesus? And the very nature of this question, hey, what, what sign are you performing to prove that we should believe in you? What are you working This very question reveals their hard-heartedness and their blindness, right? Because what did Jesus just do the previous day? He fed close to 20,000 people with a little boy's lunch. And they have the the, the gall to come and say to Jesus, Well, what are you doing? What miracle are you going to perform to show that we should believe in you? And this shows really that they misunderstand the very nature of the faith that Jesus is calling them to, right? He says, this is the work of God that you believe. Uh, But they want a faith that is, uh, I guess, absolutely uh, evidenced before them. In Matthew 12, 39, Jesus said this. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. See, a faith that is based upon uh, miraculous signs and works is not a true faith. And those things never really convince people because they always want more. Uh, They can always try to explain away uh, miracles and and signs and other things. But Hebrews 11.1 says this about faith. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, that's what faith really consists of, is a trusting in the Word of God, even when you can't see it. And I love what Romans 8 says uh, in the NASB. It says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So Jesus says, hey, this is the one thing that God wants you to do, and that's to believe in me. And then they're like, well, you need to prove it. You need to convince us to believe in you, even after he's already performed these miracles. But here's something. I don't think the crowd had forgotten what had happened the previous day. Yeah, I think they they understood what Jesus did to be a miracle. But I think they're trying to manipulate Jesus into doing it another miracle and to do a miracle on their terms. I think their attitude was something along the lines of this, of, hey, uh, Jesus, you fed us one time. Moses fed us for 40 years. There's going to be this comparison between Jesus and Moses over and over. And, and Jesus is making claims that are far larger than what Moses ever claimed. So saying, if you're going to make bigger claims than Moses, you have to perform a bigger miracle. And again, this becomes clear in verse 31 because they they point backwards to the wilderness generation and say, hey, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And they're more than likely quoting from Psalm 78, which we read uh, this morning. And what's amazing in that psalm is over and over again, what we saw was that the people 
rebelled against God. Even though they saw the miracles that he did, they saw the signs, all of these things. This is just some of the, the quotes of Psalm 78 regarding that generation. They sinned. They rebelled. They tested by demanding. They spoke against God. They did not believe God or trust in his saving power. Even in seeing all the miracles of the wilderness generation, that did not convince them to believe. They still doubted. They still tested. And the people here in Jesus' time are doing the exact same thing. They are demanding an even greater sign than what had already been performed. They saw the miracles, but they still don't believe. D.A. Carson says this about this situation. He says, but Jesus could not possibly acquiesce to this demand for another miracle. He says, with the crowd's interest in primarily uh, a political Messiah, for Jesus to give in to their demand would have been to acknowledge the rightness of the aspirations they had displayed the day before. Aspirations that he had rejected. Verses 14 and 15 in this chapter, after Jesus feeds them, they're like, all right, we're going to take him by force and make him king. And that was not the, the time nor the way in which Jesus was supposed to become king. So he, he sends them away. D.A. Carson continues, he says, Worse still, if Jesus had given in to this, it would have meant the domestication of his revealing and saving work. He would have become captive to the whims of a demanding crowd. So that was really the aim of the people here. The domestication of Jesus. To, for them to be able to control him and manipulate him. So that they would be satisfied. Jesus, you do what we want, was their attitude. And that is our natural tendency, to try and manipulate God, to, to get what we want from Him. We see this in numerous places in the Old Testament. And we saw this with, with Abraham uh, and his wife Sarai and Hagar, right? God had promised uh, Abraham and uh, Sarah, her name was Sarai at that point, He promised them a child, and then after uh, about 15 years, there's still no child. So, uh, Sarah has a wonderful idea. Hey, why don't you go into my maidservant? God hasn't given us the child that he's promised yet, but we can, we can manipulate this situation and we can bring about the blessing of God in our own timing and in our own way. That didn't work out so well, right? Uh, then again, just a couple of generations later in that very same family, uh, Abraham eventually had a son named Isaac, and then I, Isaac uh, married Rebekah, and they had uh, two sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, and it was prophesied that, that Jacob would get the blessing, even though he was the younger son. And then, uh, if you're familiar with the, the story, uh, Isaac, in his old age, his eyes were dim, and, and Jacob and Rebekah conspire to steal the blessing of Isaac. Uh, they want to obtain the blessing of God, even what was promised to uh, Jacob. They're going to take it in their own way and in their own time rather than trusting in the Lord. And what we really need to, to see and admit to ourselves is that trying to manipulate God and our circumstances is actually easier than submitting to God. Our, our natural tendency is to try and manipulate. and We, we feel that it's easier... And so we prefer manipulation over submission. But, but how is manipulation or trying to go that route, why is that easier than submitting to God? Well, because I would say this, that, that manipulation, trying to manipulate circumstances and, and situations and to manipulate God to try and do that. We, don't, we never do that successfully. 
But attempting to do that, uh, that doesn't require any faith. It doesn't require any trust, but submission does. Right? In, in a difficult circumstance, it's easy to try and work your way out of it in your own wisdom, in your own strength. But to, to trust in the Lord is, is very difficult at times. And manipulation is a, a trust in myself and my wisdom, my strength, my ability. This is the exact opposite of what we are called to do. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. And also in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That is so much harder to take up your cross and follow Jesus on a daily basis than it is to try and say, okay, well, how do I avoid picking up this cross? Right? That cross is kind of heavy. What else could I do? But that's our tendency. We try and manipulate. We try and work things our own way rather than submitting to Christ. But what does this look like on a, on a day-to-day practical basis in our lives to prefer manipulation over submission? Well, first and foremost, it begins with prayerlessness. If we are not praying, we are not seeking wisdom from God. And if we're not seeking wisdom from God, who are we depending upon? Ourselves. Yeah. Uh, prayerlessness is a, is a dependence upon uh, ourselves. Uh, and we wouldn't necessarily proclaim that uh, to one another. But that's really what takes place. Prayerlessness is an indicator that we are seeking to manipulate, trying to do our own thing rather than depending upon the Lord. You could also say wordlessness of going without God's word for extended periods of time. Not knowing what he has taught or what he's calling us to do in a given situation. Uh, if I don't know what God is calling me to do in a given situation and I don't uh, seek him in his word, what am I going to do? I'm just going to do whatever fits. And I'm going to try and manipulate the situation to the end that I want to accomplish rather than submitting to Christ. And that's exactly what the people uh, are doing here. Jesus has already performed miracles. He's already proven himself. And yet they're like, well, can you do just a little bit more to show us that we should believe in you? They're slow to believe. They have a nominal faith, not a, a true faith. But then also practically speaking, as, as individuals, and we have this tendency to push our own agenda and our own desires. I know I really uh, wrestled with this myself when we were thinking of moving up here from California. I wanted to, to, to do ministry, wanted to come up and, and plant a church. And I, I, I wrestled and had to do some serious soul examining of, Lord, is this just something that I'm wanting and that I'm trying to, to push and make happen? Or, Lord, is this really what you are calling us to? And really where you are leading and where you are guiding and I think we always need to examine our heart and our motives in that way. Uh, of, Lord, is this really uh, you leading and guiding, or is this me pushing from behind? Now, am, am I submitting, or am I trying to manipulate? Uh, just understanding our tendency and our preference to try and manipulate our circumstances, rather than submitting to Christ and trusting in Him. We, we have this tendency... 
And we must be aware of it because when we give in to that temptation, we are not acting in faith. We're acting in unbelief. We are trying to, to seize control from God of God. I know how to do this better. But we need to act in faith. We need to submit rather than to manipulate. And manipulation might seem to work in the short term, but it eventually crumbles as a foundation because it's built upon us rather than upon Christ. Trying to build in our own strength and wisdom. So a nominal faith prefers manipulation over submission. That's the first preference we see here in this passage. And the second, it's found in verses 32 and 33, and it would be this, that nominal faith prefers shadow over substance. If you look with me at those verses, this is Jesus responding to them. He says, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so Jesus is is responding to them and he's going to correct their understanding in, in several different ways. Jesus corrects them concerning who provided the bread from heaven. Because this whole time they've been emphasizing Moses. Moses provided for us. And if Jesus, if you're the new Moses, if you're going to lead a new exodus, here's what you need to demonstrate. Well, Jesus says it really wasn't Moses who gave you the bread. It was God, the father who provided the bread in the wilderness. It wasn't Moses. And then Jesus also corrects when the bread from heaven was provided. Right, there's, there's two, uh, there was a clear contrast made in the, in the Greek here, and the, the, the verb give appears twice. And the, the first time it appears, when it says, uh, it was not Moses who gave, that uses what's known as the perfect tense, which means that there was an action that took place in the past and it has ongoing results uh, into the present. Okay? Uh, so Moses uh, gave the bread in the past and it's continued to make an impact. But the second time that word give is used when it says, but my father gives you, it's in the present tense. And it's showing that there's an ongoing action at that very moment. So don't focus upon the bread that was given to the the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus is saying you need to understand what God the father is offering to you this very moment. That God the father is right now giving you the bread from heaven. That is what uh, Jesus corrects them concerning, of who gives the bread, when the bread is given. Then he also corrects them concerning uh, what the bread of heaven is. Jesus says that he himself is the bread of God. In verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so, Jesus doesn't just give the bread of God. He is the bread of God. He's not just the dispenser. He himself is the bread whom the people need. And the the true bread that was sent down from God the Father is presently and continually giving life to the world, not just Israel. The Jews had exalted Moses and they had treated him as the one who had provided for them in the wilderness, but they were missing the point. The the bread that Moses gave to them was really only just a shadow, 
Uh, it, it was intended to, to point them to a greater spiritual truth, uh, and that greater spiritual truth, the substance casting the shadow, is Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, you guys have missed the point completely. They've made too much of an emphasis upon Moses and too much of an emphasis upon the manna, and they've lost the, the, the greater spiritual truth here. Moses gave a bread from heaven, but the bread itself was a shadow of the substance of Christ. And even as we, a couple weeks ago, we read Exodus uh, 16, and we saw that, that even the manna uh, spoiled after a certain amount of time. Uh, that they would uh, gather too much or too little, and then they would, or if they gathered too much, uh, that it would, they would leave it over, they left it over for the morning, and they, they woke up and found that it had spoiled. And Moses had said, yeah, don't do that. Uh, you need to trust that the bread will be there every single day. Uh, and so even the manna spoiled, even the manna was something that uh, would only last for a time, which again gives uh, further light into what Jesus said back in verse 27, where he, he urged the people, don't work for food that perishes, but work for the food that uh, leads to eternal life. The true bread from heaven is Jesus himself. He is the substance. There's a passage in Colossians chapter 2 that says this, verses 16 and 17. Paul's writing, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And in that verse in Colossians, uh, they, the, the Colossian church had, had focused so much on all of these other things that were intended to point them to Christ that they had lost sight of Christ. They had focused more and more upon the shadows than upon the, the substance. And the Jews right here in, in John chapter 6, they had loved the bread from heaven. Right? They had loved it. But they missed the point of it. They were mistaken about the bread giver, and as a result, they missed the greater truth that the manna was supposed to point them to. They preferred the shadow over the substance. I love what C.S. Lewis says, just about our, our tendency of loving the things of this world rather than the greater spiritual truths that we have in Christ. He says, indeed... If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. He says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Because we are far too easily pleased. And that's the point. We are far too easily pleased. We, we're satisfied uh, with, the, with the shadows and the sins of this world rather than Christ. We, we tend to prefer the shadows over the substance because Christ is too small in our, in our minds. He needs to grow larger. In our minds, Christ is too small and the world is too big. And we enjoy the pleasures of this life in the here and now, but we miss how those pleasures are intended to direct our hearts and minds heavenward and to show us Christ. John Piper says, A steady diet of triviality shrinks the soul. 
You get used to it. It starts to, to seem normal. Silly becomes funny, and funny becomes pleasing, and pleasing becomes soul satisfaction. And in the end, the soul that is made for God has shrunk to fit nicely around triteness. And when, when we seek to find our satisfaction in, in these shadows and in these sins in this world, we never truly find satisfaction. And then our soul shrinks down so that it becomes satisfied in those really small ways and we lose sight of all of the satisfaction and joy that is to be found in Christ because of who He is and all that He has done for us. God is to be our greatest and deepest satisfaction because He is our Creator. He is the Sustainer. He is our Savior. Because of all God is and all that He has done, we are to look to Him uh, in faith and find our satisfaction in Him, not in the things in this life and in this world. And that's what Jesus is, is confronting the Jews in this uh, passage of saying, hey, you're, you're looking and being satisfied in the wrong things. They are preferring the wrong things, as we have seen. They're preferring manipulation over submission, and they're preferring the shadows over substance. But all of that is to be contrasted with this third and final preference that we see here in verses 34 and 35. That that genuine faith prefers Jesus over everything. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What we see is the, the people responding to Jesus, saying, hey, the, the true bread is the, the one, he who comes down from heaven. And the people respond, and they say, well, well give us this bread. That, that sounds fantastic. I want some of that. Now, and their response really sounds a whole lot like uh, the response of the Samaritan woman back in John chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, when Jesus uh, spoke of the living water that he was able to give to her, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And the people were still not understanding the nature of the bread that Jesus is offering to them. They're still not understanding that Jesus uh, isn't the dispenser of the bread. That he himself is the bread. He is what they need. And everyone who comes to him in faith will not hunger and will never thirst. And uh, there's an, an emphasis there, a double negative. Again, which in English cancels each other out, but in the Greek uh, shows an even greater emphasis. Uh, that you will never, ever, 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 ever hunger or thirst if you come to Christ. And this is not meaning uh, that you, you won't be dependent upon Jesus. What it means is that uh, there won't be that, that emptiness in your soul. That there is still a continual dependence, but Christ will satisfy and Christ will, will care and nurture you all the days of your life. And those who trust in Christ find that satisfaction. And those who don't trust in Christ are always searching for it. It always eludes their grasp. And this statement of Jesus that I am the bread of life, one of uh, seven famous I am statements are, are going to, uh, to appear in John's gospel. You're probably familiar with them. And this is the first one, I am the bread of life. And in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And then John chapter 10, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd. 
John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in John 15, I am the true vine. And each of these statements is intended to reveal something about Jesus, something about uh, the nature of the gospel. Now, in this statement, I am the bread of life, is intended to communicate uh, a fundamental truth about man's dependent upon Christ. Uh, now, I understand that uh, there are many here, maybe uh, in our church and many uh, in our culture, that, that can't eat bread. Right? If you're one of uh, those who are always constantly depressed because you just look at the pizza and you can't eat the pizza, uh, you have to have the gluten-free uh, pizza. So in our circumstances, we, we, uh, we see that many people that can, who cannot eat bread, but that's largely due uh, to the way that we have uh, grown uh, our crops here in America. But now for the majority of people across the world and across uh, human history, bread has been the main food group, the, the main staple uh, of their diet. Uh, and so when Jesus is saying, uh, I am the bread of life, they, people who heard that would have immediately understood, well, I can't live without bread. Uh, and that, that's the idea. Well, I can't live without Jesus. That we need to be utterly dependent upon Him. And this is the truth uh, that God wanted the Israelites to understand uh, during their years in the wilderness, even when God Himself was providing them with manna from heaven. Deuteronomy 8, chapter, or Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 3 say this, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In the, the original bread from heaven, the original manna in the wilderness was intended to teach Israel to be dependent upon God. Right? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And Jesus here is saying something similar. Israel, you don't live by physical bread. You live upon Christ. Because Christ is the bread of life. And bread has long been an illustration of both dependence and salvation in Scripture. Over and over again, it's held up in this way. And when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, what was one of the, the, the prayers that he taught them? Give us this day our daily bread. An indication of, Lord, we are dependent upon you to continue existing. And then there's Isaiah 55. One of my favorite chapters. Verses 1 through 3 say this. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that uh, which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. See, Jesus is the bread of life and we are called to depend upon him. 
and to prefer him over everything. And that, that that when his statement of saying, I am the bread of life, it's an echoing of Isaiah 55. It's an echoing of an invitation to come uh, and to partake of Christ, to behold him, to look to him in faith. Uh, And if we do, if we do come to Christ, and if we look to Him, we'll never hunger, we'll never thirst, we will be satisfied. But not only will we be satisfied, we will have our sins forgiven. Every one of our sins that separate us from a holy God will be wiped uh, clean, and we will have a, a clear account. We will be able to be reconciled with a God whom we have rebelled against. And that is the invitation of Christ. To look to Him in faith, to depend completely upon Him. And maybe you're here this morning and you've already trusted in Christ. Maybe this is something that you've heard frequently. But you are still seeing maybe ways that you are living according to your own preferences, your own desires. Maybe you're not as dependent upon Christ as you should be. Say, Lord, I can provide my own bread. That's often the way that we live. Rather than saying, Lord, I need you to provide for me. I need to be dependent upon you. We don't always have that attitude. So even if we have already trusted Christ, we need to continually look to him as the bread of life. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you continue to trust in yourself, in your own efforts and wisdom, this invitation is for you. Uh, to look to Christ in faith, uh, to forsake all of your other uh, areas of trust, of looking to Christ alone for your salvation, for your forgiveness, to be forgiven and reconciled to the God that we have all rebelled against. I would invite you to, to look to Him in faith now. What we see here in this passage is to see that Christ must be our all in all. He must be the one that we prefer over everyone and everything. That if we prefer shadows over substance, if we prefer to try and manipulate rather than submit to Christ, that reveals that we are acting in unbelief, not in faith. And and we do this in a variety of ways, as as I've said. And we do this very subtly. Uh, uh, and and a, a more overt example of this would be uh, in the 1930s in Germany after Hitler had, had risen to power. What was amazing is there, there was a, a state church in Germany and Hitler said, okay, I'm going to have to change this church. Uh, because Hitler viewed Christianity as something that was weak and feeble because of its dependence uh, and its proclamation of a message of grace. So Hitler says, hey, I can't have this. I need a, a different faith. And so Hitler and his associates set out to create a new Christianity in their own image rather than in the image of Christ. And here are just some of the changes made to the German church in the 1930s. And it was, happened over time. But there were these decrees that, that suddenly came about. Uh, and I'm just listing off. Uh, five of over 30 uh, decrees. And it says, uh, number 13 was that the national church demands immediate cessation of the publishing and dissemination of the Bible in Germany. So from that point forward, the church uh, was not able to, uh, to publish or distribute Bibles. The national church also declares 
that, uh, to it and therefore to the German nation, it has been decided that the Führer's Mein Kampf is the greatest of all documents. It, is not only, it not only contains the greatest, but it embodies the purest and truest ethics for the present and future life of our nation. So, can't distribute the Bible, and then uh, Adolf Hitler's book was held up as the greatest book in Germany and in the world. The National Church will also clear away from its altars all crucifixes, Bibles, and pictures of saints. And on the altars there must be nothing but Mein Kampf to the German nation and therefore to, the, to God, the most sacred book. And to the left of the altar, a sword. And he also said this, On the, the day of its foundation, this new church, the Christian cross must be removed from all churches, cathedrals, and chapels. And it must be superseded by the only unconquerable symbol, the swastika. Right? And so we, we hear that and we're like, man, that's so obvious what they're doing. They're creating a faith of their own. They're creating a faith that works to produce their desired outcome. Right? Hitler says, hey, if, if I'm going to declare war against all of Europe in a few years, I can't have Christianity be the, the, the national church. And so he says, well, let me create a different church. Here's what I want to accomplish. Let me, let me make this religion and then follow this religion that will get me what I want. And so it's really easy to see that in Germany in the 1930s. It's a lot more difficult to see that in our own hearts and lives right now. And the way that we casually disregard some of the things that Jesus says. And the way that we slowly say, well... Jesus has said this, but I prefer this. That little by little, if we follow our own preferences, if we struggle to submit to what Jesus is saying, we will end up exactly like uh, the, many of the disciples here in John 6. When Jesus has said something hard and they say, well, if I do that, that means I have to say no to all of these things that I want. But Jesus says, you have to follow me. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and follow me each and every day. We are not, we are probably not tearing down the cross in our hearts and setting up a swastika. I don't think we're doing that. But we're doing many other things that have the same motive. We're changing, we're manipulating, we're creating a faith of our own to get what we want. But we're not depending upon the grace of God. We're not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. But we have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to, to follow Christ, to behold Him as the bread of life, and to march according to what he has said, rather than saying, well, I don't like that, so I'll march this way. We must see Christ as our all in all. But to, be, to do that, to be able to, to follow Christ, we have to know what he has said. We have to know what he is commanding us to do. And then when we know what he has commanded us to do, then what do we have to do? What's the next step? Then we have to do it. Well, we're reading Ezra and Nehemiah this month, uh, and uh, I love what Ezra, 
Ezra's life commitment was in Ezra 7, 9. He was going to study the scriptures. He was going to do them and to teach them. And that's the right order, right? To, to study, to make sure he understood. And then the next step was for him to do it. That he himself had to obey. And then if he was studying and obeying, then what, what was he going to be able to do? He was going to be able to teach others. And there's so much there, but what we have to, to come to grips with and what we're challenged with here in John 6 is, will I follow Christ in every area of life or am I going to follow my own preferences? And I would challenge all of us to make that commitment that Ezra had. To study, do, and then teach the Word of God to others. May that be our commitment this morning.